Well, good morning. Would you join me opening up your Bible or your device to Exodus chapter 2? Blue Pew Bible. You can follow us on page 45. Well, it just so happens uh, that this morning's passage that will be in in Exodus um, aligns with one of the most overcovered media stories so far in 2020. So let me know if this general summary of our passage, Exodus 11, no, Exodus 2, 11 and 22, let me know if this rings familiar, anything you've seen in the news. There's a member of the royal family who was considered a foreigner to the native people of that land, has now chosen to leave the royal family to head to its hometown people, forsake the riches and fame of royal life because they think it's the right thing to do. They never really fit in. And the rest of the royal family, not big fans of this decision. I could shift gears and just preach about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry this morning. (laughs) If I did, I'd hope you'd hold a membership meeting right after and vote me out of the pastorate. Just send me on my way. Never understood the media cultural obsession with the English royal family. I'm not going to make eye contact with our English brothers and sisters. I'm not into it. I'm not knocking you if you're into it. I'm just saying um, you could do better. You could do better. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, um, God bless you. Don't change. Okay? Um, But you've heard and we hear often of a classic rags to riches story. Right? Someone comes from nothing, they climb all the way to the top. We see it in Silicon Valley, we see it in professional athletes, corporate executives, and they're good stories. I love myself, a good rags-to-riches story. Um, but our passage is basically the direct opposite. It's a riches-to-rags story. And I actually think it's going to prove to be way better for us. And we're going to see how Moses, who we saw, was born last week, how he's been adopted into the royal family of Egypt as a Hebrew. And we're going to see what's going to happen that's now going to get him to a place where he will be the arch enemy of Egypt to set the stage for his return. And so here's a question. It's going to be on the screen. Here's a question that's going to overshadow our entire passage this morning that I want us to consider together. And we're going to see throughout the sermon different versions of this one question. But here it is on the screen. Are you willing to forsake something this world considers good for something God considers better? You can make the case that the ins and outs of the Christian life every single day kind of boils down to this. Are you willing to forsake something this world considers good for something God considers better? Again, we'll be in verses 11 to 22 of of Exodus, not Ephesians, Exodus 2. And we're going to see three interventions in our passage this morning. Three interventions, and we're going to start with the first one, just verses 11 and 12. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Three interventions. The first one, a violent intervention. Verse 11 begins like you would begin a story you're telling your kids before bed. One day. But what's unique about this start of this story in verse 11, it 
it is 40 years after verse 10. 40 years between verse 10 and verse 11. And you'll see why I know that in a little bit. But one day when Moses had grown up, so this is not adolescent Moses, this is not teenager Moses, this is not even young adult Moses. This is 40-year-old grown man Moses. Which is worth saying, we really know nothing about Moses' upbringing in the Egyptian household. Anything that we think we know probably comes from a movie we've seen about Moses. Um, you have the Prince of Egypt animated movie came out in 1998. Or more likely, generation after generation, um, thinks about the 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments, with Charlton Heston. Multiple generations think Moses, and they picture Charlton Heston. <laughs> a lot of problems with that. But none of these stories of his upbringing are from the Bible, right? We can deduce from historical documents what growing up in this era in the royal family would have been like, from education to wealth and privilege, um, but the biblical account gives us nothing. But Moses goes out and he comes across an altercation. He comes across an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Most likely, we know the Hebrews are enslaved. Most likely, this is a slave driver beating one of his slaves for an unknown reason. And here is 40-year-old Moses, the Hebrew prince of Egypt. He looks right. My right's this way. He looks left. He sees no one. And then he goes and he kills the Egyptian. What do you do with a dead body in the middle of the desert? Hopefully you don't have experience, but you would dig a hole and you would bury him. And Moses intervenes and he does so violently. And so that seems straightforward enough, but there's a single question that kind of opens this whole thing up for us. Was Moses wrong for what he did? Was this a crime? Did Moses commit a sin here? Um, and, and I'll just kind of say up front, put my cards on the table. It's really not 100% clear. And yet I do lean towards Moses being in the wrong here, that he sinned. But I'll kind of lay, all, lay it all out, and then you can decide for yourself. Okay? Um, because first off, there's no indication that this was premeditated. Right? He was not going out looking to kill an Egyptian. If it is a crime, it's what we might consider a crime of passion. He comes across somebody being beaten. And it's not social equals to each other. This is an um, abuse of power. It's a slave driver beating a slave. And the Hebrew word for beating there is actually the same word for killing. So depending on context. So we kind of think about that. This means that this Egyptian was beating him to death. This is a violent beatdown, an intention to kill. And so then Moses looks around. Why does he look around? Could be a couple reasons. Right? It could have been, hey, is anyone else going to intervene here? Anyone else seeing this? No? Okay. It's on me. Or it could be that this made him so angry. It was so unjust. He wanted to do something. He knew he was going to be violent. And he wanted to see, anyone else going to see this? Any witnesses here? Maybe he meant to just break it up and rough up the Egyptian. Maybe it was accidental. Right? It was a fatal blow to the head. Not his intention, but he kills him. He buries him because he knows if he's found out, it's going to cause him some problems. Is that his conscience telling him this was wrong? Maybe. Here's what we do know, right? We know murder is wrong, right? The irony here is that later in this book, in Exodus 20, God is going to give Moses these tablets with the Ten Commandments, one of which will say, do not murder. 
Was this murder? Are there situations where taking a life is not wrong? Okay, yeah, we would even say that today. Self-defense, a just war. Was this one of these situations? I don't know. So one of the important things about studying the Bible, right? If you're studying the Bible and trying to, you come across a text and you're like, I'm not really sure what this means. Um, one of the first things to do is to say, does the Bible elsewhere tell me anything about this? The Bible is its best interpreter of itself. What can speak into this situation? And it just so happens there are two passages in the New Testament who speak directly to this event. The first is in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, there's a man named Stephen. He was arrested by the Jewish religious leaders. They put him on the witness stand because they hear he is preaching Christ. They don't like that he's preaching Christ. So they ask him to uh, defend himself. And Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, gives the most unbelievable sermon that connects everything in the Bible from Abraham to Jesus. And then he'll be killed for it right after the fact. But listen to what he says about Moses in verses 23 and 24 of Acts 7. When he was 40 years old, there you go, I know he's 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So Luke, the author of Acts, writing the words of Stephen, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, we know now that Moses is 40, and we know it has come into his heart to visit his brother. So now we're connecting the dots back to Exodus 2. When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. At age 40, he was so unsettled with his privileged life within the royal family, God puts this burden on his heart for his native people who are being oppressed, being enslaved by the people that, who has adopted him. Weird spot, by his step-grandfather, the Pharaoh. All these clues that his heart hurts, and he went out. Moses was not in a routine walk. Moses was not out for some exercise and stumbled across this. Something had been churning in him for a long time where he said, I'm going out to my people. Remember, they're in two different cities, building up cities to fortify Egypt and be enslaved. So he goes to there, or at least toward there, and we're told in the text that he looked upon their burdens. He is seeing it firsthand. So did Moses mean to kill this Egyptian? We don't know. But did he mean to go out and visit his people with a heavy heart over the systemic injustice that they are under? Knowing it was probably going to cost him something to do so. Yeah, I think he did. And so... To pause here, and let me pose this first question. Are you willing to forsake your privilege and power to identify with the oppressed and marginalized? Especially fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's a question we need to answer today. And hear me, I'm not pushing uh, what somebody might call the poverty gospel, right? The anti-prosperity gospel, where any wealth and any power means you must have sold out. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible says. But what I am asking is, am I willing to forsake my privilege and power to identify with the oppressed? 
Consider Jesus' words in Matthew 25 to his disciples when he says, Truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brothers, you did to me. What are we going to do with that verse? A Christian life is defined in part by an orientation towards the least of these. To not just be reactive to need and maybe step into it, but to be proactive toward need. You know what I mean? Like, I am looking for it. I'm looking to where I can help. I'm looking to where I can lean in, just as Moses did. A burden that comes upon your heart, and you just have to go out. And I find it interesting to see that everything seemed to change when Moses saw it firsthand. At age 40, again, I'm sure he's been unsettled for a while. He's been thinking about this for a while. He's been hearing stories of things that have been happening. But now he goes and he sees it for himself. And he experiences the oppression firsthand. And he could not walk away. In fact, he went and killed the guy. But one reason to not just financially support ministries, although we need financial support in ministries. We are a church in Ridgewood. God's blessed us to be able to do that and to do that well. But there is a case to be made to go and see for yourself. Whether that's going on a missions trip to see it firsthand. That's why Jeff for 20-something years has been bringing the youth to go places, to not just hear about it, not just watch a video about it, but to go, to embody see it, experience it firsthand, what that does for teens. To go be part of a service project, to go to the least of these, is that I think when we see it, it changes everything. And in the moment of seeing it, Moses has a decision to make. He had everything to lose in this moment. Everything to lose, nothing to gain in the world's eyes. In this moment, would he forsake all the glory and power of being in the royal family and all the prominence it promises? And he will forsake it because he could not shake what he saw. Are you willing to forsake privilege and power for the sake of the oppressed? That's number one, a violent intervention. Let's keep going. This time, verses 13 to 15 of Exodus 2. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Number two, there's a discouraging intervention. There was violent, now there's a discouraging intervention. So Moses, we're following the story here, he buries the dead Egyptian, he goes out again the next day, and now he sees two of his own people struggling together. That word struggling, it's kind of a vague word, but it's some kind of visible altercation, right? It's not a violent word for beating that we saw in the first one, but they are two Hebrews and they're in some kind of fight. And for the second time, Moses stands for the one being oppressed. He addresses the Hebrew who is in the wrong. So this presumes Moses has seen enough here to clearly distinguish. One guy was in the wrong, one guy was not. He goes to the guy in the wrong and says, what are you doing? Why would you strike your companion? Even before we see the response, 
This is an example of Hebrew people being torn apart by violence. And now they're beginning to turn on one another. Isn't it all too true that when people are beaten down by outside forces, they tend to start taking it out on the ones they love and care for most? It's such a sad reality of this fallen world. Think about how even in our families this can happen to varying degrees. How easy it is for a family who's experiencing loss or tragedy or some kind of hardship that is outside of their control. No one's at fault necessarily in the family, but how easy it is now for that family to start just turning on one another. It's a small scale, but I think even in the past year for Rochelle and I, how many just sleep-deprived days we have had in the last year. And you know what happens? Like, in that sleep deprivation, I'm not at fault. Rochelle's not at fault. And the babies aren't even at fault. They're babies. That's what they do. They wake up all the time. (laughs) But I can remember multiple times how that can lead to tension so easily between Rochelle and I when we're just tired. And if we're not careful, we start taking it out on one another. How true is this? It happens in families. It can happen in a church family. Things outside of our control, and yet we take it out on the ones closest to us. Why? Well, if this scene hurt Moses to see this this Hebrew man's words cut even deeper. He says, who made you prince and a judge over us? You going to kill me? Like you killed that guy yesterday? And it's intentional words, right? He knows this is going to cut him to the core. He mocks him for his status as a prince. Pretty boy up in the palace coming down to the people. Are you going to be a prince over us now? And then the big reveal that words out that Moses killed the guy. And either the Hebrew that was saved started to spread the word. That's probably the most likely case. Maybe somebody did see him that they didn't think saw him. But now Moses has a couple problems. First of all, word's out. And word's going to travel. And it will get back to the family uh, that he killed an Egyptian on behalf of a Hebrew. And he's going to be severed from the royal family. But you know what? Even with how much pain that is going to bring him, I don't think that is what hurt most. You know what hurt him most? That his own people will not accept him either. That they could not see him as one of them. Again, why do I think that? Well, the Bible interprets itself. We're back to Stephen in Acts 7. He's not done, just dropping knowledge for us, okay? Um, We read verses 23 to 24, and now verses 25 to 28. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man was wronging his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? I said earlier there's two passages that help us in the New Testament. Acts 7 is one. Hebrews 11 is the other. We read one verse from this last week about Moses' parents, but it continues this hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. This is verse 24 of Hebrews 11. 
By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I wish I could preach that verse, because that just mentioned Christ's motivation. Jesus has not been born yet, can't go there right now. But here's what it does tell us. Moses went out to his people fully aware he was leaving his royal family behind and he wanted to bring his people salvation by his hand. Did you catch that in Acts 7? It's by his hand he wanted to go save his people. But he was rejected. He thought they were going to understand. They didn't understand. And so I think what we're kind of seeing, I think I'm confident in saying this, that Moses had it in his heart. He was going to start an uprising. He was going out to his people to start a rebellion, and he was going to lead it. And I think we see that this is why I think he was wrong in killing the Egyptian. That while his heart might have been in the right place, he was foolish in the way he went about it. He tried to do it his way. Do you catch the wording? It's by his hand, Moses' hand, he was going to save his people, not God's way. And it backfired. And they rejected him. And it's a discouraging intervention, which leads us to the second question. Again, if you're taking notes, second question now, relating to the one at the intro. Are you willing to forsake your reputation and be misrepresented by those whom you seek to reach? In the Christian life, there's no guarantee that those whom you love most, those who you want most deeply to believe, are going to hear you there's a good chance they're, they're not going to understand that they're going to misrepresent what you're trying to do or the way that you're living. And all too often, especially in these situations, we try to take control of things and control others that it's by our strategy and our words that we're going to convince them, compel them to believe what we believe. And maybe our hearts are in the right place but we go about it in a way that really did not listen to God's leading in our hearts. And hear me, this is real for us. Some of the most painful conversations I've had with members of Grace Church are regarding family members or friends who don't believe. Or children who were raised up in the church and who are no longer a part of a church. It is top three, at least, if not number one, of pain that members of our church experience. I think about the fact that we have 100 kids from birth grade to fifth grade in our two hallways right now, four of which are mine. And I can't, I can't imagine the pain and I can't at the same time of them being raised here, truth here, gospel going into them, and then one day them being like, nope. And how much I'd want to control that and steer that. Are you willing to forsake your reputation and be misrepresented by those whom you seek to reach? All right, let's finish the passage. And by God's grace in this third intervention, things are going to finally turn around for Moses. Verses 16 to 22. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? 
They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he might eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Third intervention in a row that we see, this time a rewarding intervention. Moses, hated by the Egyptians, resented by the Hebrews, decides he's got to run. And so he does. And the man runs far, like multiple days, which makes sense if you're running from the most powerful empire in the world. you got to get out of town. And he comes to the land of Midian, and he sits down by a well. Um, I think we have a map of where they, most people think Midian is, if you see it. Um, kind of top left is the kind of heart of the Egyptian empire. He goes all the way down across the Sinai Peninsula to the land of Midian. Now, to be fair, it's not 100% sure if this is where the Midianites were. They were a nomadic people, and by the time of the turn um, of the century, uh, when Josephus started giving the Jewish kind of oral history, this is where they were. So it's possible they were somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula. But the point being, they're far away, multiple days away. But the Midianites, some of you might know, are distant relatives of the Israelites. Midian was the fourth son of Abraham. Birthed by Abraham's second wife after Sarah passed, and, and the Old Testament relationship between Israelites and Midianites, it's like a family, it's mixed. It's a little complex. Sometimes they're friendly, sometimes they're fighting, and it seems like here they're at least having a good moment. But notice, the father of these seven daughters was called the prince of Midian. I mean, sorry, priest of Midian. Interesting term. It's possible they did serve the one true God like Abraham, but we don't really know. But they had some kind of religious understanding that he is a priest. In either case, Moses comes and sits by a well, setting the stage for this third intervention. And once again, Moses finds himself on the side of intervening for the oppressed. These seven daughters come with their father's flock. A group of shepherds comes to drive them from the well. They're fighting over water. Moses sitting, watching. And he can't just be a bystander. So he stands up, saves the seven daughters from the shepherds, this time without killing anyone. Maybe learned his lesson. Don't go for the headshot. I just get him away. And he waters their flock. The daughters say, thank you very much. And they go home. And this is telling because the father says, Whoa, crook trip today. How'd you guys get home so fast? Which tells us this altercation and struggle with the shepherds is probably a daily thing. And it takes a while to get the water and eventually get home because the daughters also say, well, an Egyptian saved us from the shepherds. Indicates these shepherds are well known. Not just a random group, the shepherds. But how interesting, did you catch this? How they refer to Moses. The Egyptian, the Egyptian saved us. Maybe it's the way he was dressed. Maybe it's the way he styled his hair. Maybe it's his accent. But whatever it was, they see Moses as an Egyptian, not a Hebrew. And the father, I love the answer, is like, well, where is he? Like, you just left him by the well? So I guess Moses just stayed at the well. Because they go back and then they bring him home. And Moses was content to dwell with the man 
content to stay a while, and stay he did, and he marries one of these seven daughters, Zipporah. And this aligns Moses with his ancestors, Isaac and Jacob, who both met their wives by wells. Both met their wives helping them with water, apparently just an ancient hotspot for singles. Don't know what the modern-day equivalent of this can be for those who are looking for a spouse. But if there's not an online dating service called thewell.com, like someone make that happen. It's yours. There's my idea. It's yours. Go make a mi millions of dollars. But notice the way the daughters, again, describe the interaction. He delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and he drew water for us. And watered the flock. Not only did this man save us, he served us. He performed the job of a servant even after saving. If you were here last week, you might recognize the connection to that, to Moses' name. His adoptive mother named him Moses, for I drew him out of the water. Now he draws water out for others. He marries Zipporah, they have a son. And Moses is going to be in Midian with this family for the next 40 years. 40 years in Egypt. 40 years in Midian before he ever comes across a burning bush. Next week we're going to finish chapter 2. We're going to dig into how God prepares his people and hears his people in times of waiting. My question for you, are you waiting on God for something? Are you waiting right now on God for something? Be sure to be here next week. But this last intervention gets us to the third and final question to consider. Are you willing to forsake comfort and ease to stand up for what's right? It's close to the other questions, especially the first one about forsaking privilege and power, but it's a little bit different. Because there are times, I think more times than not, for us, where God is not calling you to deny your power, but comfort. He's calling you to deny your comfort, the comfort of doing nothing when you're called to be doing something. If we're honest, it's easier in this world to do nothing than something. Have you ever, I don't know if these exist anymore, but have you seen any of those hidden camera shows where actors are in a public place and they stage a big thing to happen to see if the bystanders will do anything? Like, low-key, I'm terrified I'm going to end up on one of those shows. And like how many people kind of look at it in the corner of their eye, they're back in their phone, and they're like, oh, this is uncomfortable. You know, it's like a customer yelling at somebody behind like a cashier desk or something. They're like, is anybody going to step in and intervene here? And I don't think I'm alone in saying this, but here's what I know about myself. I am often far too protective of my own comfort in this world. I think I value comfort far too highly. And it leads to passivity. It leads to inaction when courageous action is called for. Especially for the courageous action of loving others enough to stand up for what's right. This past Monday was Martin Luther King Day. And as always on this one day of the year, all over social media, you see the post of his letter to a, from a Birmingham jail. If you have not read it, it'll take you about 15 minutes. I'd highly recommend doing so. But he wrote this from a jail in Alabama in 1963. And it was a letter to white clergymen in the city who were basically like, what are you doing? Causing all this unrest. 
I want to read a quote from this letter. He says, In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. Hiding behind the guise of comfort and ease. It hurts to read, and it hurts even more to think that if I were a white pastor in Birmingham in 1963, I probably would be guilty of this too. Today, are you willing to forsake comfort and ease to stand up for what's right? All these questions we've asked this morning, Moses just models well for us in the forsaking of this world for what God considers better, but even Moses is not our ultimate example here. Even Moses, as we have seen and will continue to see over and over again in our series in Exodus, the man is flawed. He's got some blind spots. And so the life of Moses kind of, kind of keeps us searching, doesn't it? Right? It keeps us looking for another deliverer right? who will perfectly model this out in life. Um, a deliverer who will forsake power and privilege. Philippians 2, 5-7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That kind of deliverer. A deliverer who would forsake his reputation amongst his own people and family. Mark 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him, and they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. That kind of deliverer. The kind of deliverer who would forsake his own comfort to do what's right. 1 Peter 2, 24. He bore he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus forsook what the world said is good for what God the Father said is better. And it was for the joy set before him that he carried it out perfectly. And, and the reason why I'm a Christian today, the reason why I'm preaching today, is not because all these things I do well, but because Jesus did them on my behalf. Because Jesus delivered my soul. Because Jesus forsaked his power and privilege and his comfort and his reputation for me. That's why I'm a Christian. Nothing of what I do. And if you have not trusted your life to Christ, it is by his wounds you have been healed. It's not even by Moses' example, although it's a good one. It's by his wounds that you have been healed. And it's by his power that he can free you from oppression. For you were made alive in Christ by his spirit so you might repent and die to sin. And that is a decision you can make once God opens your eyes to see it. 
And through his sacrifice, he then frees us and equips us to grow in becoming more like him, to forsake what the world considers good for what God considers better. Jesus put it this way, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross and follow me daily. And it's a lifelong process. But it's the center of discipleship to take up the cross and give everything else up. Give up your power, privilege, reputation, and your comfort. Give it all up for the sake of the gospel and making disciples. The world will say that's not good, but God will say it's even better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you how every passage, every story traces its way to the work of your son. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus did come, he did die, he did rise again, and he did claim a bride. That he intervened, and he got the church, the bride of Christ, to claim to be his own, Lord. Keep us in your truth, keep us in your presence, Lord. Allow us to continually look up, Lord, to be saved from the oppression of slavery, of sin, and Lord, to be equipped and given the strength to forsake what this world considers good for what you consider to be better. That's in your name we pray. Amen.